It's a privilege to live this long so that I can experience the things that I've experienced and then be able to share what I've experienced with other people. When I used to run around as a little one, as a child in the villages, that Indian children used to rub my arms to try and get the white color off. I didn't really claim my voice until I was 93. Energy has to move. If energy isn't moving, it dies. So if any of us find ourselves stuck and in a position where we are really unable to see any future, start looking for it. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. so humbled to be able to introduce my next guest, who is a remarkable 102 years old. Her name is Dr. Gladys McCary. I wanted to personally make this intro after I interviewed her because I want you guys to understand how important this conversation was. It was truly one of the most remarkable conversations I think I've ever had. And the wisdom was absolutely groundbreaking that she was one of the only female doctors in her time. Not only that, but she was a holistic doctor, something that wasn't really understood. It was very taboo. And so I want you guys to go into this conversation with a completely open mind. And I know that this will truly change my perspective and outlook on life. And I know it will change yours too. And real quick, a lot of you who are listening do not follow the podcast. A lot of you are listening to the shows, but you don't actually follow it. So make sure you push that plus button that you follow because it really, really helps the podcast grow. Okay. Enjoy the show. Dr. McCary. So thank you, first of all, for coming on the show. And I want to start with this. If you had to look back at the decades of experience in your career and you had to summarize the mission that you're on and why it matters, how would you do that? I would say that uh, it's a privilege to live this long so that I can experience the things that I've experienced and then be able to share what I've experienced with other people. I mean, life for me is such a... Uh, moving active stream that it's hard for me to pick any one moment or anything but the whole expanse of what's gone on during my life it, as I look back is awesome <laughs> and to be able to really share that with people is downright fun I agree I that's the one thing I love about what I do is I get to have conversations with people like you, and I, I never in a million years would have dreamed to do that. What do I need to understand about you in your background to understand the woman that I'm looking at now? Well, I think I came in with a, uh, not I think, I came in with a mission and a purpose. And I think that what I've learned is that every one of us has come in with a mission and a purpose. Our, our um, challenge and actually our whole joy is finding it. And I think you've found yours. I know I've found mine. 
And when you know that you're it's kind of maybe not exactly where you're supposed to be, but you're on your way, you know. You're reaching for that uh, spot in your in the in the universal development of whatever is going on in this world, and you and you know that you're on your way to do that. It's 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 amazing. It's awesome. If you're even attempting to do that it's amazing it's awesome you know just to have found it is wonderful but actually to be on the way looking for it you know it's such an adventure it's great and so how did you get to where you are now where did you grow up at and how did you get into this field of medicine and holistic work that you do <laughs> in one minute to tell that. <laughs> <laughs> no, take your time. I want to hear the whole story. Well, I came into a family of uh, pioneering physicians. So, of course, that's how, how I thought life was supposed to be. Um, my parents were both osteopathic physicians in a time when uh, osteopathy wasn't even accepted as a, a medical a process. You know, back uh, when my parents got their um, uh, diplomas, my dad got a diploma, my mother got a diploma, but when they went came to India, um, my mother came along sort of like his baggage. She didn't have a passport. So the acceptance of women into that it was one thing to accept a man into the field of medicine which they couldn't do as osteopathy my dad had to get an md degree in order for that for him to be accepted as a physician so that the mission could accept him as a missionary so in that process my mother just was a tag along she went on my dad's passport to india so when they got to India, they took went on up to North India, up into the jungles of the low Himalayas. And um, my mother went into labor with me at the Taj Mahal. I think she's wow. kind of a little drama queen, maybe. But <laughs> it was, um, I think it was a very nice thing for her to do, you know. <laughs> Let me start my process of coming here out at the Taj Mahal. Anyway, um, so I was born in um, in India and grew up with my parents working in the uh, in the actually right out in the villages of North India with the people of North India. These people had never seen a doctor. In fact, they'd never seen white people a lot. When I used to run around as a little one, uh, as a child in the villages, the Indian children used to rub my arms to try and get the white color off. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was that kind of a delightful process. And um, so I was really, really happy 
during those years. But when I started school, uh, life turned around because I found out that I couldn't read. I couldn't uh, add because figures just jumped around all over the page. We didn't know anything about dyslexia at that time. So I was a class dumbbell and couldn't uh, pass from first grade to second grade because I couldn't read. So I had to repeat first grade twice as the class dumbbell, which was really, really painful and really scarred my (laughs) psyche in such a Mm -hmm. way that I didn't really claim my voice until I was 93. However, my home life was wonderful. And I uh, was able to, when I left the school, kind of leave that behind and go home and life was good. And I was surrounded by love and, and caring and all of that. But then I had to go back to school. So in the process, I think what happens to, maybe there are a lot of us, uh, maybe um, most of us have some place in our uh, psychological um, process where we've been damaged and damaged enough that it hasn't healed. We've just kind of gotten over it and gone on with our lives, which is what I know I did because uh, although I couldn't read or write, somehow I learned how to read and write. And uh, how I did that, I don't know. It was interesting when we started the American Holistic Medical Association in um, 73, there were a group of us physicians sitting around a table talking. There were 10 of us. And as we were talking, we realized of the 10 of us, six of us were severely dyslexic. Mm. And we we looked at each other and we said, now look, at this. this is kind of interesting. Maybe that's why we moved into the field of alternative medicine, because we knew there was something missing from from our perspective in the field for the for the rest of the world. And that's what we're looking for in holistic medicine. So I think it isn't it amazing how our our lives take us where we need to go. Mm-hmm. And and so you know that that was a point of uh, of real pain for me and suffering as a child. But in the long run, amazingly um, important in my understanding of what it was I was supposed to be doing. uh, To me, that's just really remarkable. Wow. So take me back to getting into medicine. You mentioned you watched your mom and your father go into medicine and the difficulties of being a woman. Take me through when you started getting into this field. Did you run into any challenges being a woman practitioner? And how did you overcome those? Oh, yeah. There's a nice path, too. (laughs) (laughs) When I started medical school uh, in December, no, in September of 
1941. World War II started in December, December 7th, 1941. So all of my training in medical school was about war, getting rid of war of pain, and and being at war with just being at war. And so that shifted into the field of medicine. So our purpose as physicians was to get rid of, it was a war on disease and pain. And from where I came from, from my very essence of who I was about um, disease and pain, I knew there was something missing there. So I, I, I must have kept asking questions or doing something because uh, during those years of training, I was sent by my dean twice to the psychiatrist because she thought I really didn't have the right attitude towards uh, medicine. And somehow the psychiatrist thought I was okay and sent me back, and I got through medical school. But it was um, a time when people, the world did not accept. I mean, I were, our world, I, maybe someplace else they did, but our world of medicine did not accept women as uh, proper <laughs> to be the people who were practicing the the uh, profession so that when I started my internship in Deaconess Hospital in Cincinnati they didn't have it they never had a woman doctor there before so there was no place for me to uh, sleep when I was on call because they didn't have a room for me so I found the x-ray table with a pillow and a blanket which I didn't feel was so bad because at least I was getting my education. Uh, it wasn't, you know, there weren't, this hospital had never had a woman doctor before. So the chief resident really didn't want me there and did everything he could to keep me, get me out. It didn't work because I knew that I had to hang in there. So, it, but it was a really tough time, and but we made it through. Uh, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I look back now on those days, and when I watch TV or watch the news or so, more than half of the do- doctors on the on the screen are women. To me, that's just absolutely awesome. Uh, because at that time, mm-mm, you, you're, you, you know, I was sent home and by the patient who, the patients who said, "Oh, go home to your babies and leave me alone," and I'd have to ask my husband Bill, who was a, a physician, MD, to, to go see this patient, and he would go and do the same thing I had done, and put her into the hospital if she needed to or whatever. So. It was a total acceptance of having a man physician, but a woman physician was just, it it was considered, 
we were not a we were not capable, I think that's the word I'm thinking. We were not capable of being physicians. I mean, that's just astounding that you have lived this enormous life to get to see these huge transitions within our generations. Because as a woman myself and being somebody who's very strong-minded, I couldn't imagine having to know that I'm capable and intelligent and able to do exactly what a man's doing, but being told you can't do it because you're a woman. Was there ever a time that you just felt like giving up? <laughs> no, not giving up, but boy, did it push my buttons. Uh, I was, uh, let's see, the medical, Colony medical society called me in to, for disciplinary uh, act. I was doing something that they considered um, I don't know what they considered it, but it wasn't proper medicine. Uh, we call it holistic medicine. They did, they called it uh, bad names, which I won't even answer. Uh, anyway, so I was in one of these meetings, and they did their disciplinary stuff that they needed to do, and I took what they gave me and uh, reached into my purse and got my uh, my key chain which was like a it was almost a s instrument <laughs> and i had it in my hand and i went out into the hall and with my purse and my lawyer and we start and one of these physicians who's on the board came out and he comes walking up to me and he says now let me tell you something honey well that pushed a button in me <laughs> I and I turned around and I took my fist and I pounded him on his chest. And I said, you will not call me honey. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm your peer age-wise and professionally, and you will not call me honey. And I looked over and my lawyer was just leaning on the wall laughing. He was so, <laughs> and I went, got up to my office and I told my daughter who was my partner what I had done and she said, oh, mom, you didn't. <laughs> but three years later, I was called up again for I don't know what and uh, received the discipline and whatever. But when I finished and I went, got up to the office, I told my daughter, you know that guy? He came up to me and he was nice as pie. <laughs> So wow. sometimes it took a, a straight faced on confrontation. Sometimes mm -hmm. it just was a matter of just letting the stuff go because <clears throat> it was just, just too big and too broad. And, uh, you know, the world would get it when it would get it. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, we just had to quit with one hand and let it go. That's such an amazing journey because, you know, holistic medicine, I feel like plays such an intricate, intricate part in medicine and we're starting to catch up, you know, like me, myself, I'm very holistic, but I also believe in the data and the science and I believe they go hand in hand. And one thing I loved about when I was looking at your book, which is called Well-Lived, everyone, you guys got to go get this book. I'll link it for you. You share six actionable secrets to enjoying lives that are long happy and purpose driven. So let's go let's go over some of those. The first one you say 
spend your energy wildly. What does that mean? Energy has to move. If energy isn't moving, it dies. If we have energy within us, which we do have, if we don't recognize that and we don't, we think we can uh, bank it or we can save it or we can do something and not use it, we're, we're really having trouble with what life's all about. In fact, if I, you know, I've had patients who have, um, I've told them for one reason or other that they've had, they really should go home and get some rest. And they've taken me uh, literally and gone home and gotten some rest, which meant to them they quit doing anything. In other words, if they if they were going to rest, they, they didn't have anything to do. And they would just kind of let life go on. And by the, pretty soon they're stuck. And then what are they doing? They're doing nothing. And they come back. And I have to explain to them that it, when I told them to, to go home and rest, that's doing something. It's not just cutting off all the juice and saying, I have to bag this juice and I'll get I'll get you know. I'll get some. I'll get it back later. Uh, uh-uh. it's like physical exercise. You know, if you don't exercise physically, uh, what are your poor muscles going to do? What are your joints going to do? What is it? What are your eyes going to do? For crying out loud! Because when you exercise, all parts of your body are moving. And it's a it's a joint effort to stay alive. Uh, you, you know, either we can um, live our lives so that uh, we kind of expect when we get to be I don't know what age sixty something like that to start to fade, and then continue to fade. We'll just fade into whatever. Uh, I wasn't it uh, one of uh, our forebears in this country of ours said you, that he wanted to live his life until he died, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the way I feel about it. If I can, if I can't keep doing the things that I think are important and are exciting to me and really feed my juice then I might just as well, you know, die. And I'm not ready to do that yet because I think that there, there's, well, for one thing, there's more life to be lived. So mm-hmm. I have a, a purpose to keep going. But one, the purpose is to share the purpose with other people who may or may not have found their juice. And so it's sort of like, if I have a flashlight on a dark path and I'm walking down that path and I can see as far as that path leads me one step at a time, and that's good. That's, you know, I can keep going that way. But as I'm going that way, if I'm actually looking at the path, there may be a little flicker of light here or a little 
over there someplace. And I realized that somebody else, who I may not know, is struggling along the path, and their light is, is getting kind of dim. If I just shine my light over onto their light, their light becomes great, and they can go on and move. So if we can see ourselves as all the time sharing our juice with other people, it's huge. It's not taking the flashlight and putting it in our pocket. It's using that light to enhance other people's life. Or maybe it's a little puppy dog that needs some juice. Or maybe it's a plant. All living things interact. If there's life around you, and there always is, it's going to be moving. And you, our privilege and our... Uh, joy is to reach those who are having struggle, who are struggling with the uh, life process for them. I had this wonderful friend and patient who moved into uh, dementia, and so he was, you know, he couldn't keep on going by himself, and we got him a really nice home that he was staying in and and uh, but it was his own room and he just he was d there and one day I took him a little plant and I said to him now James this is your plant and see it 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 needs to be taken care of it needs to have water and it needs to sit in the sunshine you know I explained to him and so he, I didn't know whether he was taking it or not, but he, he was sitting there listening. But when I came in to see him a week later, he met me at the door and he said, come in, come in, magic, there's magic here. And I said, oh, really? And he took me, he said, see this box? And we went over to the wall where the uh, air conditioning box was. And he said, see, when I push this button, this everything gets hot. And my plant doesn't like it. It gets sad. So I then can come back, though, and I can push this button, and everything gets cold, and the plant likes that. So it's magic. He said, it's a box. It's just got two buttons, and you know, and he's going on all of a sudden, life's movement and activity and everything activated something in him which had been dwindling and kind of getting less juicy as time went on. But that little plant, when he saw that and got the connection of what was happening, it relit the, the light within himself, so that at least he had that. I was so happy. Aww. And so a lot of people, I feel like, have a hard time moving on or moving past their traumas and their past. And that leads, that leads into the second concept that you talk about in your book, that all life needs to move. So how do we move past our traumas and our roadblocks? 
Did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a coach and a professional tarot reader? Now, it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a way to connect with your guides on life issues such as career and love and spirituality. And sometimes people need one-on-one coaching to help them through breakups, toxic relationships, healing the mother wound, their spiritual path, or navigating tools as an empath. So I do all of these things to help my clients pursue life and decisions and understand themselves. So if you are interested in one-on-one coaching or a tarot reading, click the link below to get started. Okay, back to the podcast. I think the important thing is for us as individuals to realize that we are human beings and our job is to make choices, to use our free will and work with it whatever it is that lets us know that we have a purpose. And when we find our purpose, or even are in the process of looking for what our purpose is, we'll keep moving. We can't We can't not move if we're working with that whole process. You know, as long as we're alive, we're going to breathe in and out. We're going to, our heart's going to beat. Our eyes are going to blink. We're going to be in the process of moving as long as we're alive. If we recognize that and enhance that and enjoy that, that it grows. If we don't think, you know, if we think we have to rest it or not use it or whatever, or we think we don't want to do it or we're stuck and we're not going to do it. You know, all those things come in together. Um, It's not going to go anyplace. But if we can accept the fact that, okay, we're stuck and and, uh, this isn't getting me anyplace. It's not getting me forward. See, I have this idea that um, when God, whatever God is to each one of us, created the universe he did this beautiful job and it was just perfect in its in its very essence and then he created the human being and he said to us now look you are the only beings who have free choice and free will and I give you this gift of free choice and free will so that you can take, well, uh, uh, you can, what's the word I'm using? Dominion. You have dominion over the earth. And we as arrogant human beings thought he said dominance, which we thought was you know, we can do anything we want with it, which we have done, and look where we are. I mean, you're in a hot place, and so am I. But it's a, it's this idea that we are the ones that have access to the Earth's riches, and we're going to take them, and we do that. And when we do that, we destroy ourselves. It's like with our juice. If we don't use our juice for the, for the growth of other hu- live, living beings 
or Mother Earth herself, who is a living being, then we what we're doing is trying to bank energy, which, you know, it doesn't work. It dies. And then we're really stuck. So if any of us find ourselves stuck and in a position where we uh, are really unable to see any future, start looking for it. You're never going to find it if you don't start looking for it. It's there. The future hasn't moved. The future hasn't gone anyplace. The light has kept on going and and moving and, and being what it is. But if we're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. Are you concerned about our future generation? Because sometimes I, I look at all of the things that have happened in the last, you know, let's say decade. And, you know, in your 102 years of living, you've just seen war and famine and you've seen progress. But I feel like even with technology, we're so connected, but yet we're so disconnected. And and me personally, I worry about my daughter's generation. Do you get worried about the generation that's to come? I think it's always been there. I think that the generation that we worry about is because we love that generation and we love our process and we love the elderly. Think of what we've done to our elderly, for pity's sakes. You know, we've medicated them into foolishness, which I think is sad. But our younger generation has been stretched into uh, ability to use technology in ways that is huge. And they are kind, they can be stuck in the technology and and uh, the uh, mechanisms that are, uh, are associated with that, you know, and, and the fact that you and I can do this process, if they don't understand that the, there is a love connection that goes with this process of, of technology, then the technology itself becomes a stuck place. I see sometimes in a restaurant, a family sitting there and everybody's using their cell phone. And to me, that's, so I don't, I'm not so worried about it, about that as I am the fact that we in the generations in between have not reached with love to this generation. We've condemned it. We've said we're, we're you know, we've, we haven't taken the responsibility of giving them a plant that they could work with. In other words, if our concern about the I mean, upcoming generation is that it's not, it's not, reaching for what we think it should be reaching for. What are we doing to reach back to them to help them with their light, which is shining? What are we doing to uh, step past and around and over the whole business of 
domination of the world to the process of the that we're there to really help the world i mean that's our job who what else in the world can think and do the things that we humans can think and do and if we can pass this excitement about what we as humans could do on to the next generation wow <laughs> you know if they can understand that they have to take on you know i i say all that i've done won't amount to a hill of beans unless you pick it up and run with it if we can instead of condemning them for what they're doing and we uh, watch what happens at our dinner table. If we don't do something about it, I'm telling you, when when my kids were growing up, our dinner table was the, the center of our lives. Uh, six o'clock, everybody had to be home. And they knew it because if they didn't get home at six o'clock, someone would, would have eaten up their food. They wouldn't have <laughs> what they were looking for. So... It was that kind of, and, and we would have the best arguments, the best discussions, the best, we, uh, for a while, we had a, a, a group of us that were punsters, and we, you know, who could do the best pun, and the whole, it was that kind of a, of a exciting time, so they came home, not only for the food, but for the companionship and they got to know each other and they and and so they have you know it's it's been an awesome thing so i don't think we can blame the coming generation or blame ourselves i think we just plain didn't know we you know why rock walk around blaming ourselves do something about it so what if you, you know? could do something about it let's let's yeah. say you had you were the one person that can make a universal law that would change or pause something or make something different what would that law be what what do we need to do if you could change one thing that would make this next generation more open minded or better all of the great teachers through time Jesus, Buddha, and so on have said love. Love is a great teacher. It's a great healer. Uh, you can have the most amazing technology in the world. If it's not used with love, it won't do the job. And simple technology like my parents had when they were in the villages of North India did amazing job because they didn't have the technology but they had the love of the people and they cared for those people and healing happened. It was, you know, healing happens when love and life connect and love and life are joined like uh, the whole process of a pregnancy. When the sperm and ovum connect and the pregnancy starts, then the whole process for nine months or however months, is is 
part of the mother. It's one unit. It's not uh, because the, the, the fetus understands what she's thinking and, and uh, eats what she's eating and does what she's doing. They are one unit. They become a separate unit when the uh, fetus takes its first breath and the cord is cut and so on. But until that time, they are one unit. So if we come into this world connected in that way, because our body loves this a baby that's growing with us, and uh, the whole process of talking about abortion and everything, uh, I don't think that it's, when a miscarriage happens or an abortion is is what happens in the process of this child if the if the fetus understands why this is being done and i've had many many women and i've had many many obgyn people who could say this too when they've walked and talked with the patient and explained to them how what's going on and said check with that baby and tell the baby why you're doing this and if the baby understands that it's a loving act and you have a reason for doing this and you do the abortion and uh, uh, that's one thing or very often very often that baby will spontaneously abort because I've had, uh, I have letters from uh, people who have gone through that process of understanding that they were a, 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 a process of the, where the mother was wondering what to do and, and decided to have an abortion and either they aborted spontaneously or she had the abortion, but they never considered it a killing. They considered it an opportunity to go on and do what needed to be done in life and then come back again if you need to. But it's, it's understanding life it's at its essence that life has to go on. And... Uh, if if in the process there's something that is very hard, a law, a war happens, and people are killed, or whatever, a, a tornado comes through, and in life that's life, and if we can accept life as what it is, and put it in the context of love, healing happens. That's mm -hmm. what happens when healing happens. I think that a lot of people get so stuck in our traumas in the past and it's really hard for some people. And it, and that was me at one point that it was just so hard for me to move on that I was constantly living in the past. And I had to get to the point where I had to ask myself, what are the lessons for me to learn in order for me to not repeat this? Because my firm belief system is that the universe will continue to present you with similar situations until the lesson is learned. And one of the concepts in your book, and this is my favorite one, everything is your teacher. 
I would love for you to expand on that. Well, I believe that. I think that <clears throat> as we go through life, we're presented with things and how we uh, accept those things, whatever they are, is our choice and our our responsibility. It's like if I get a cut on my arm and it's hurting and I'm looking at it and I'm picking the scab and I keep picking that scab, it'll never heal. But if I treat it in loving care and do what needs to do, it will heal. And years later, I'll look at my arm and say, oh, hello, I know what you are. I know what happened. You know, it's that ability to put life in context with whatever it is that's going on. And as you can do that and see the process and with love and with life, put it together and go on with your life and find that what is this that taught me? You know, what's this amazing? Dyslexia, it took me... <laughs> Till I was 93 before I understood that that whole process of my injured psyche, because I had dyslexia, uh, was so important that I actually took step by step by step by step learning it and had got to, got to the point where finally it was a dream that told me what had happened. So it's that understanding that if we can really believe that our lives have a purpose and really believe that our our job is to choose whether we're going to move to the light or just hang in there in the darkness. You know, it's our choice. We can do either one and uh and in the process when we do choose light or darkness we're doing it for the people around us if we're concerned about the next generation or the few the past generation if we really concerned about them get your love box going and figure out what it is that you could do for them. You know, what, what is it that uh, if you see a situation where there is something going on and there's something you can do about it, um, you know, try to do something about it. And sometimes it doesn't quite work and sometimes it does, but it's there for you, for you to accept. And sometimes it can just be you know, after my 99th birthday, I was at the grocery store and I had just come out with my groceries in the in the in basket and an elderly gentleman came up to me and he says, oh, may I help you? And I said, no, no, I can do this. And he says, he stretches himself up and he says, well, I'm 86 years old. And I looked at him and I said, and I'm 99, and I marched off and got into my car and sat down, and I thought, you nasty old lady, what a terrible thing to do. And I was 
going to go into the, the uh, store and find him and apologize because I was saying to myself, he, nice old dad comes along to try to help you and you'd sass him back like that. But then I got to think about what a hysterically funny thing that was. Two kids in a kindergarten uh, uh, sandbox, you know, I'm bigger than you are or whatever. It was like these <laughs> two old folks <laughs> puffing up their chests and saying, <laughs> and I sat in my car and I laughed and laughed and laughed until I just couldn't, I, I had to drive home. But but it's it's that ability to put what you have done into the stream of things, into the context of life, and um, and and go on with it, you know. And sometimes it's humor that allows you to do it. Sometimes, uh, you know, I I could have gone back in and and we just started a whole whatever, and uh, but the, the reality of what that this whole thing was so ridiculous. But it was all. Uh, act of love, his kind act, set me off on a giggling sp- spree. Just cracked me up. So you you talk about love, and a lot of people struggle with love and keeping relationships or finding a partner. In your 102 years on this amazing earth, what have you learned about love? <laughs> well, <laughs> I remember when we were right when I was writing this book I was work, working with a friend and we were we spent at least 2 hours and it was probably more trying to find out how we could explain love and we finally realized that that's what the world has been doing since the beginning of time. Songs have been written about love. Paintings have been painted. Uh, plays have been, books have been written. We, we as human beings have been trying to explain love since the beginning of time. And if we have never experienced love, we don't know what it is. I think that some of these uh, this is a possibility. Shootings that are happening in our country where young men are going into a classroom and shooting other people, other kids, maybe that that young man, because it's been the young men that have been doing it, has never experienced love or death. Death to them may be like a TV show you have a, a hero who dies, but the next day he's back, and then the next day he's back. So death doesn't exist. They, they don't understand. Unless they've had a pet or a friend or a, somebody in their family. Who, so, so they have experienced death, and they know what it feels like. Then they would, I, I think they it wouldn't be as easy for them to do what they're doing. But if they, beyond that, 
if they have not experienced love, you know, if they've been up in a traumatic situation most of their lives, then what do they know about love? It'd be like trying to tell a um, person who was born blind what the color green is. If he's never experienced it, he would never know. So my solution to that is let's put a guardian dog in a classroom. Let's have a dog there so that the children in that classroom experience the love of that dog and experience that so that um, they can not, you know, they'll understand if that dog dies or if the dog is taken away, they'll experience the loss of something. Whereas if they've never experienced that, how are they, you know, they, these young men apparently are going in and shooting their these other children and then killing themselves. So if you, if, if in a loving way we can put into our classrooms the essence of love, which to me is a dog, a pet, then maybe, maybe rather than putting guns in the teacher's hands, which is a ridiculous idea, uh, if we put the whole process of our life experience, which is what we're trying to teach these children anyway, that's what our teachers are trying to do, if we can do that in the form of a dog, think of what that might do to our, our whole setup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, how we view love and relationships really stems from how we were shown. How did our parents role model that? Did we learn about it as children? So, I mean, it's just so fascinating to not only learn from you, but you've you've lived so many decades and, and what an amazing and humble experience it is to even just get to have this conversation with you. I have a closing tradition on the show and I have a deck of cards that I pull from and each card has a unique question and I pull from the deck and I see what comes out and ask the question and you answer. So let's let's see what comes out and we'll get a good question going. All right, let's see. Okay. I have two of them. Let me see which one I want to do for you. Hmm. If you could relive a mistake made in the past to relearn an important lesson, what mistake would you choose? Uh, I've been working on that one all my life. <laughs> you know, because it, I don't think there is one mistake. I think sometimes we make a mistake and that leads to another one and that leads to another one. And when we, if we can find out what, where is we're going and what it is we're working towards, um, uh, it's the mistake that led us to the, to the understanding of what it was that that mistake was teaching us. And there have been, you know, probably every day we make a mistake that isn't worth 
following up. It's a time of a kuchpurwane. I mean, mistakes are just lessons that either we learn them or we don't. And, uh, uh, you know, one day I was coming up my steps and I, I tripped and I fell. And that was been a few years back and I got hurt. You know, there there, there are mistakes that you make and um, uh, big mistakes. Uh, I certainly never considered my divorce a mistake, although it was the most painful thing that happened to me because of what I learned from it. So no matter what the mistake might be, uh, I can either forgive myself for what it was when I finally understand what it's trying to tell me or I can just uh, go on with what my life was doing and make it a good joke because sometimes it's just not worth um, spending a lot of time over it's it just depends on the moment what it is what it is that I'm in the process of learning that is there for me to learn. Well, Dr. McCreary, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your continued life's work helping other people. I mean, this is just, it's just so phenomenal that you've dedicated decades of your life doing this, even in times that everyone else around you was telling you, this is not a place for a woman. This is not something you should be doing. And you still kept going. And that's so inspiring to so many people out there, myself included. And I just love learning from you. And I'm just so humbled and grateful. And you just have so much of my gratitude. I cannot wait to share your book with the world because I think that there are nuggets of wisdom that every single person can learn. And so I'm going to link that for everyone to share. And once again, just thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What a joy that's been.